Hey, good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. Thank you. Good to be with you guys this morning. Um, hey, if this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here this morning. Uh, if you take a moment to fill out uh, the Connect card, it's a little insert in the bulletin you received when you walked in this morning. Um, and uh, that's just a good way for us to get to know you, get to know a little bit about you, and, and hopefully get connected with you uh, in some way, shape, or form, and, and uh, get you involved with what God is doing in our church family here at Veritas. Uh, if you want to turn to Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, we're coming out of three weeks in Nehemiah chapter 8 in our sermon series in Nehemiah, and we are going to do all of Nehemiah 9 this morning, which is a long text. Uh, that's uh, page 229 in the white and blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those, turn to page 229, that'll get you to Nehemiah 9, and we're going to look at the entirety of of the chapter. Uh, when you get there, you can just go ahead and stand right on up. I know I just told you to sit down, but um, when you get there, you can just stand right on up. And we're going to read from Nehemiah 9. Let's listen with reverence and with joy, because this is our God addressing us this morning. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canaanai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You, made, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give you to, you, to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down to Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath, 
and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. You are God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and with the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, And you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt, faith, you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day 
and the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight? Our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, as one of the biblical poets so beautifully put it, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. As we've seen in Nehemiah 8 for the last several Sundays, there is a time for laughing and dancing and rejoicing when God's people gather for worship. There's a time for feasting and celebration. We've seen that in Nehemiah 8, haven't we? As the people have rejoiced and and feasted and, and celebrated God's great goodness and grace to them. But as we come to Nehemiah 9, we see that equally is true. There is a time for mourning and weeping when God's people come to the presence of the Lord. Just as there's a time for feasting, there's a time for fasting. Just as there's a time for celebration, there's a time for confession. And depending on your experience with church, however small or large your experience is, you might be tempted to fall on on either side of this. Sometimes in some church traditions, it seems that as if joy and rejoicing and feasting and celebrating uh, are are almost viewed with like suspicion, you know? Uh, It's like there's nothing to be happy about. It's like Jesus is still in the grave or something. On the other hand, sometimes in other church traditions, it, it seems like everything is always happy and clappy functionally almost like a a Buddhist-like mindset uh, wherein one denies the reality of pain and suffering and sin in life. And of course, wherever that happens, whenever one denies the reality of pain and suffering and sin, those things don't actually go away. They just fester. However, true worship of God involves both celebration and confession. There's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. And one of the things that ought to cause God's people to weep and mourn together is the sin that still remains within us. When we worship God and and actively, we, we seek to actively remember his goodness and his grace and his unrelenting, unceasing, abounding, undeserved kindness to us, we ought to be sorrowful for the ways that we've dishonored him and the ways that we've brought reproach upon his name. We've all done this. When we remember his never-ceasing faithfulness, we ought to be sorrowful for the ways that we've been unfaithful. So church, if if we're going to genuinely worship God, we must be a people who genuinely confess our sins. And so this morning, we're going to look at at four marks of genuine confession in Nehemiah 9. Four marks of genuine confession in Nehemiah 9. Now, when you hear the word confession... 
a number of things might come to mind. Perhaps you think of, a, of the sacrament of the Roman Catholic Church, the sacrament of confession, uh, the practice wherein a person goes into a little small booth and, and they uh, tell their sins to a Roman Catholic priest and they offer absolution and say, uh, you know, do this or that and make it right. Or maybe if you've been uh, discipled in the way of, informed in the way of pop culture and social media, what comes to mind when you hear the word confession is this, these sort of uh, anonymous sharings of embarrassing information through memes and, and such on the internet. You know, there are entire like social media platforms that are dedicated to this. Um, or maybe if you're, uh, you know, like a crime and, and cop TV show buff, you like Blue Bloods and CSI and Law and Order, Special Victims Unit and all that. Maybe what comes to mind when you hear the word confession is a sort of forensic confession, the type of confession wherein one admits to a crime and they're subsequently charged and prosecuted and convicted of the crime they've confessed. However, what we're talking about, what the Bible talks about most of the time, not always, but most of the time when the Bible, specifically Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, what is talking about when we use this word confession here is prayer, a particular form of prayer actually. We're talking about the kind of prayer wherein one is convicted of their sin before God, and therefore they approach God to own their sin before him, to own their fallenness and their folly before him. If you're a Christian, you know about this. This is how the Christian life begins. The Christian life begins with you owning your sin and bringing it to the Lord in faith. Uh, But this is not something we, we only do at the beginning of the Christian life. This is something, this is a form of prayer, this is a practice that we continue to do all of our lives. We actually do it every Sunday here. We did it just a few moments ago. Uh, partially we do this because we, must, we believe that we must uh, confess our sins to God before we approach this table, which we're going to do in a few moments. Uh, we also do this because we believe that this is a form of prayer uh, that Christians must practice, and, and we want you to be uh, equipped and discipled in, in practicing this, this particular form of prayer in your life. Uh, we want to teach and train and disciple in order in this particular practice. Uh, we want you to grow in confessing your sins before God, uh, because the reason we do this is because it's in confessing our sins to God that we honor and we glorify Him. It's in confessing our sins to God that we find rest and satisfaction and assurance in our souls. We find assurance of God's forgiveness. We find peace and joy and rest and refreshment in His presence when we come to Him in confession. The way that the Apostle John communicates all this in John 1, nine, he says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the path to forgiveness and cleansing, the path to rest and refreshment in the presence of God involves confessing our sins to the Lord. So what does genuine confession look like? Well, let's look at at, at this exceptional example here in Nehemiah 9. First, we see that genuine confession is God-centered. The first mark of genuine confession is God-centeredness. Look at the Levites, the way that they pray here, uh, starting in verse 9. Actually, not even pray here yet. The way that they call the people to confession of sin here. They say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then when Ezra uh, begins to lead the people in prayer, look at the number of things he says here. Verse 6 says, you you are the Lord, you alone. 
You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Verse 8 says, you have kept your promises, for you are righteous. Look at verses 9 to 14. Ezra says in, 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 in prayer, he says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths of uh, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Hopefully you're getting the picture here. A lot of yous in in those sets of verses. Confession is centered upon God, upon his character, upon his righteousness, his goodness, his worth, and his works. This is why we confess our sins in the first place, because he is good and worthy. I think we, have, uh, we tend to have a hard time with this. That's why we tend not to emphasize this particular form of prayer so much today. It's because we, we, we tend to think of ourselves therapeutically rather than theologically. We tend to think of ourselves therapeutically rather than theologically. And here's what I mean by that. We tend to not think of ourselves so much in relation to God as much as we like to think of ourselves in relation to sort of self-care and emotional wellness and the like. And I'm not saying that self-care is wrong. I'm not saying that emotional wellness, uh, that we shouldn't be concerned about that and pursue that. I'm not saying that therapy is wrong at all. I know some muddle-headed Christians have, have said such things. They're wrong. I totally agree. But much of the time when we're struggling with, say, anger or discontentment or unthankfulness or something like that, often... We're quick to think that the answer to our issues is that of self-care. You know, you lash out at your kids, and you think that the answer is getting more time away from them, getting some alone time, taking a warm bath, getting a massage, getting out of the house for a little bit. And you know, that, that may be helpful. It's not a bad thing to do. But ultimately, that's not the remedy for your sin. The remedy for your sin is repentance. It's turning to God. He is the remedy for your sin. Yes, you need time for self-care and, 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 and all that. But that in and of itself is insufficient. The, the remedy for your discontentment and your unthankfulness is not a mere change of attitude or, or perspective or getting a massage. It's repentance. It's turning to Christ. We must recognize that ultimately the, the remedy for our sin is not found within us. Ultimately, the remedy for our sin is not found within a set of therapeutic practices or self-care. The remedy for our sin is found in God and in God alone. So where else do the Israelites turn when they've sinned but to God? They turn to him in prayer. 
They turn to him in confession. And as they turn to God in prayer, they admit culpability, which is the second mark of genuine confession, culpability. Now with Ezra being the biblical scholar that he is, uh, his prayer is in many ways a, a lesson on the history of Israel. And so as he leads the people in prayer, he confesses the sins of the people of Israel throughout the centuries. And listen to what he says, starting in verse 16. He says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. And they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And likewise, look at verse 26. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. And furthermore, look at verse 29. They acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, is, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. And lastly, look at verse 33. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. This is the people of God admitting culpability. They're, they're, they're admitting their guilt and their fault in what has happened. They're taking responsibility. They're not seeking to justify themselves. They're not seeking to excuse themselves. They're not seeking to minimize what they've done. They're simply saying to God, you're right and we're wrong. We've done wrong. We've sinned. We've acted wickedly. Now, if God-centeredness is, is a mark of genuine confession that goes against the grain, this one does as well. Reason being, you know, we live in a time and a place wherein we tend to primarily see ourselves as, as victims rather than perpetrators. You know, it's really interesting to see this. It's, it's odd. You, you know, on the internet, everyone is a victim. On the internet, Democrats and Republicans are both persecuted minorities and victims. On the internet, both secular atheists and evangelical Christians are persecuted minorities. This mythical place called the internet, everyone is a persecuted minority. Everyone is this, is this victim on the internet. The reason being is, is that we too often see ourselves primarily as victims. We tend to see ourselves as victims of sin rather than perpetrators. And of course, I, I don't want to minimize the reality that every single one of us are victims of other sins. That is very true. All of us have been sinned against. We have received wounds at the hands of others. And the Lord invites us to bring those wounds to him. He invites us to find healing and protection in his presence. However, on the other hand, each, is, each of us are also sinners. Our hands have dealt blows and wounded others. We've each done wrong too, and yet we don't as readily recognize that, do we? And this is something that goes all the way back to the garden. Uh, when God shows up in Genesis 3, after our first parents sinned, they present themselves uh, as victims to God. Adam says, you know, it wasn't me, it was uh, this woman that you gave me. It's actually her fault, and actually, God, it's your fault too. And God turns to the woman, to Eve. She says, it's, it's not my fault, it's it was this serpent. He tempted me and I ate. It's not, I'm, I'm, I'm a victim here. We've been doing the same thing ever since. I remember reading an interesting book by a British psychologist a while back named Theodore Dale Rimple. And uh, 
in this one fascinating chapter, he, he talks about some interviews that he had conducted with men who were in prison throughout Britain for different reasons. And uh, at one point, he talks about how he interviewed these, these three guys um, who were uh, on three separate occasions, and they were all in prison for stabbing someone. And, uh, and each one of them, e- e- each of them, very interesting, when they were pressed to describe the event that led to their imprisonment, they each described the stabbing in interesting terms. Each of them said something along the lines of, the knife went in. Not, I stabbed the person, or I thrust this knife in them, or something along those lines. The knife went in, as if the knife had a mind of its own and they weren't in control of it. No culpability, no responsibility. Likewise, he, he talks about an interview he conducted with a man uh, who had been in prison several times for this and, and who was currently in prison for breaking into churches and stealing valuable, uh, valuable items. And he had done so many, many times, and he was currently doing time for it. And when uh, the, the Dr. Dale Rimple asked him why he did this, the man actually blamed the churches. Uh, he said not, not for any reasons from his childhood or bad experiences with churches or anything like, that, anything like that. He actually said that the churches were at fault for having such poor security. And therefore, they're at fault for, for making it too easy to break in. Another interview was with a man who had the bad habit of, of breaking into people's homes and then into department st- uh, stores and, and stealing electronics. Whoa. We're okay. Uh, and in this interview... Uh, the imprisoned man actually started to ask the questions, uh, and he demanded that, that the psychologist uh, tell him what caused him to continue to, to break into these stores and homes and steal electronics. He, he thought there must be some sort of you know, psychological, uh, hidden psychological secret that causes me to do this, and if I only know that, it would free me from this life of crime and, and set me on this path of virtue. And when Dr. Dale Rimple refused to answer the man's questions... The man responded, well, something must make me do it. To which Dr. Dale Rimple responded, how about greed, laziness, and a thirst for excitement? The man then responded, what about something from my childhood? Now, these are extreme examples, but I'd like for you to consider today if you might have more in common with these men than you might think. You had a sort of besetting sin in your life that, that you've blamed on your parents and the way that they raised you. Have, you. have you lashed out at your children or your spouse or your coworkers in anger and blamed them? It was their fault for provoking you. Have you, have you gossiped about others and sought to justify yourself and convince yourself that it's okay because you've been the subject of gossip as well? Have you nursed anger and resentment and bitterness in your heart toward another and convinced yourself that it's okay because they deserve it? Have, have you ever lusted, and objective, lusted after and objectified a person of the opposite sex but blamed them for wearing a certain thing or, or for being too flirtatious? So they, they provoked me to doing this. Do you refuse to take responsibility for your sin in any way? I know in many ways this is the water we swim in. It, 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 even feel, it feels good to blame others for our sin, right? But blame shifting, excusing, minimizing our sin will only lead to death and destruction and continuance in the very thing that we ought to be confessing. As intelligent creatures, we ought to take responsibility for ourselves. We're responsible for our sins. 
And what confession is, is coming before God to the one to whom we're ultimately accountable for our sin, coming before him and owning it. Admitting culpability, admitting that we have been wicked, admitting that we have been unfaithful. Accepting responsibility, not blame shifting. On the flip side, though, the third mark of genuine confession is confidence. Confidence in God's faithfulness, confidence in his grace, confidence in his forgiveness and love and unearned kindness. And look what Ezra prays beginning in verse 17 in this, in this rich history lesson of a prayer that Ezra prays. He recounts how the Lord time and time again was patient with his people. How the Lord time and time again forgave his people. How the Lord was gracious and kind and how he abounded in steadfast love time and time again. He prays they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. In verse 28, he recounts, when your people turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. In verse 31, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Ezra knows that the people can have a very present confidence in the mercy and grace of God because of the God he has revealed himself to be. In fact, one of the most repeated phrases of the Bible is repeated here in Nehemiah 9. It's a phrase that describes the character and goodness of God. It's repeated over and over again. And there's a reason for that. When something is repeated in the Bible, that's God putting his exclamation point behind it. This This is true truth. And here's where God has, has placed his exclamation point in the Bible. He says, you are God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's one of the most repeated phrases in the Bible. Do, do you believe that? Do you believe that he's a good father? Do you believe that he, he, like, he likes you? He delights in forgiving you. You know, do, do you believe that his infinite love for you is not swayed by what you do? Like the good you do doesn't make him love you anymore. The bad you do doesn't make him love you any less. His love for you is steady and firm and infinite and fixed because It has nothing to do with your worthiness. It's based on his unchanging perfections. Do you believe that what you're invited into when you're invited to confess your sins isn't a a sort of groveling, self-centered, self-punishing kind of mindset and living? What you're invited to is to position yourself to receive God's soul-satisfying goodness. The people in, in Nehemiah 9 here, they look back on their history as proof and reminder that God is this very thing, that he is a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They had, and they had reason to be confident 
in this based on the history of God's people up to this point? And if that's true, how much more do we? Because we have, we have like real, concrete, historical events to look back to. We have the, the, the life of the torture of Jesus Christ. We have the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can look at these events and say, there, there is proof of God's love and goodness. There is the the basis for our forgiveness. We don't need to wonder if God is going to forgive us. We don't need to wonder if he's good or if he's loved. The cross gives us a firm answer to that question. He's so good, he's so loving, he's so great that he would step down into our mess. He would suffer, he would be tortured, he would cry tears, he would bleed. He would let his back be whipped. He would let his beard be pulled out of his face. He would let nails be driven into his hands and feet. He would hang on the cross gasping for air asphyxiating, bleeding, dying. He would do that for you. He would do that for your forgiveness. He would do that to save you from the wrath to come. He would do that so that you would be reconciled to God and so that you would have your soul satisfied in him forever. You can come to him confident in his goodness, confident in his grace, confident that he's ready to forgive. And lastly, come to him in commitment. The last mark of genuine confession is commitment to reform, commitment to change. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Like, I I don't think one can really genuinely confess their sins if they just intend to continue right on in what they're confessing. Like, maybe you've had a relationship with someone like that before where uh, they sin against you in the same way over and over and over and over again, and you offered, they offer insincere apologies, and eventually you catch on, and they don't really mean it. It's not sincere. Confession is not genuine. Commitment to change is a necessary mark of genuine confession. Well, to show their commitment to change, the people participate in a ceremony of covenant renewal. Uh, Look at verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, in some ways, this is nothing new. You know, it, it seems like every time the people of Israel come to a pivotal point in their history, they participate in a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, They did so in Joshua 24 before entering into the land. They did so in 1 Samuel 12 when establishing the monarchy. Uh, And here in Nehemiah 9, as they return from the Babylonian captivity and exile, they participate in a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, And here they're they're, they're participating in a sort of vow renewal ceremony. You know, it's similar uh, if you've ever been to like a vow renewal ceremony for, for a married couple, maybe after a difficult season or a Uh, a significant anniversary, a married couple chooses to renew their vows to one another. They look back at their vows that they exchanged on their wedding day, and they renew their commitment to one another. And that's actually what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, The Lord's Supper, every time we celebrate it, we're, we're participating in a covenant renewal ceremony. God is renewing his vows to us, and we renew ours in response to him. And the people of God here in Nehemiah 9 and 10, they're looking back 
on this covenant that God had made with his people through Abraham and Moses, and they renew their commitment to him in response to his wonderful promises that they've been hearing in his word over the last month as, they, as they've been uh, hearing God's word preached from Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8. In verse 29 of chapter 10, uh, they promise to walk according to God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our, uh, the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. They're, they're committing themselves to obedience. And we'll get more into this next week, but for this week, suffice it to say, they're, they're committing here. They're renewing their commitment here to live wholeheartedly for God, whatever it may cost them. They're giving up their lives to the Lord as an act of worship. They're participating in an act of collective consecration. They're, they're, they were tired of living half-heartedly for God. They were tired of having one foot in and one foot out of the kingdom of God. They're tired of living in a state of spiritual lethargy. They wanted God. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to honor him. They wanted to be refreshed in his presence. And such is the mark of genuine confession. In closing, I would ask, how about, how about you? When we participate in the prayer of confession on Sunday mornings here, do you just kind of mumble your way along? When we take time for silent confession like we did this morning, does your mind drift off like a good Baptist about whatever you're going to eat after church is done? When you approach the Lord's table, this great act of covenant renewal? Do you do so with renewed commitment to walk with Jesus, to follow Jesus? Not only here on Sunday mornings, are you confessing your sins regularly to the Lord? Are you confessing your sins regularly? When, when was the last time that you personally prayed and confessed your sins to the Lord? You live daily with this God-centered mindset, admitting culpability, taking your sins to the Lord with confidence in his grace and commitment to walk in obedience to him. Such is the life of a true worshiper. Because true worship involves genuine confession of sin. You know, Peter tells a crowd in his sermon in Acts 3.19, he, he tells them to repent so that their sins may be blotted out, and so that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing come in the presence of the Lord when we repent, when we confess our sins to the Lord in genuine commitment. Maybe you can't even remember the last time you were refreshed in God's presence. Don't you, don't you want that? Maybe you remember times like that in, in the beginning of your life as a Christian, but lately, not so much. You've been cold, you've been, you've been distant, you've been distracted. When was the last time you repented? When was the last time you genuinely confessed your sins to the Lord? Jesus stands before us. He stands before you. He's a God ready 
to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding, infinitely abounding in steadfast love. He stands with his arms wide open. He's a God of mercy, love and grace and his mercy, love and grace know no bounds. He's worthy of your confidence. He's worthy of your wholehearted commitment. And he says to you, come and be refreshed in my presence. That's what the invitation to confession is. Come and be refreshed in my presence. Come and position yourself to receive forgiveness and refreshment and rest and peace and assurance from me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help us to believe it. Help us to be confident in it. Help us to trust you. As we come here in a few moments and hear those familiar words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Maybe we've, we've hardened ourselves to hearing that, but Lord, would you soften our hearts and open our ears now to hear those words anew, hear them with fresh faith and belief and trust. Lord, we pray that that as we take a few moments of of silence, that you would help us to do business with you. And would you work by your good spirit within us to, Lord, renew our commitment to follow Jesus, to renew our commitment to be obedient to what you've called us to. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a few moments of silent reflection before approaching the table.